Hi everyone, it's Kelly. This week we are sharing an episode from another podcast we think you'll enjoy. Far Flung with Salim Rashamwala. This podcast travels across the globe in search of the world's most surprising and imaginative ideas. This episode features Afro Bubblegum, an art movement in Nairobi, Kenya, that challenges the narratives often seen about Africa as limited to war, poverty, and devastation. But sharing this joyous art can also mean having your work banned. See why Afro Bubblegum faces opposition and what artists are willing to do to fight for it. To hear more episodes, check out Far Flung with Salim Rashamwala on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. What would it take for us to try to make the beginning or end of this podcast be Afro Bubblegum? The end would always have to be hopeful. Always. That's it. And then the rest of it should be filled with joy. I'm Salim Rashamwala, and from TED, this is Far Flung. In each episode, we visit a different place around the world to understand ideas that flow from there. Shout out to Women Will, a Grow With Google program, for sponsoring this episode. This week, from Nairobi, the Afro bubblegum movement, and why making art that tells stories of joy and frivolity is a human right. This could all seem obvious. Of course, we need joyous stories from everyone, everywhere. But it's not always easy to make that happen. Okay, since we were asked to start with joy, there's this form of joyous art literally driving around Nairobi. We give you matatus. You can't get bored while doing the matatus. There's good music. There's good graffiti, you're comfortable. It's not safe, I just love the vibe. Like you go in, there's loud music, there's screens everywhere, LCDs. I think Matatu are like at the heart of Nairobi's culture. Matatus are vans for public transport, but so much more. When a Matatu pulls up to get you, it's loud, both in straight up music, but also the colors and graphics. And if you're at a crowded station, the conductors are calling out to you, trying to get your business, get you into their bus. And once you pick one and you step inside, the music gets even louder. Whether it's a 14-seater or a big 33-seater, the music's probably knocking in every seat. And you can probably see a couple LCD screens, CCT cameras and monitors, a flashing light or two. And when that thing starts moving, those Matatu conductors might do actual physical stunts on the outside of the bus. Again, as it's moving, which is wild. So people seeing the bus go by are seeing all that. And those super bright graphics on the outside, they might include current celebrities like Kenyan marathon runners or Drake. Here's Moha Graphics. Great name, by the way. One of the most famous designers working on Matatus. In Kenya, we have a culture, it's like you have a shop, you have to decorate it for attraction. It's the same with Matatu. Matatu people, we decorate Matatus for attraction and a level of competition. Every Matatu, they are competing with another Matatu, different Matatus, different designers, different routes. Anyone who is trending, be it local, international, we do it. It's like a newspaper for people to see. And it's like moving around everywhere. So some things you may not see on TV, but you can see them on Matatus. 
I love the idea that Matatus are giant daredevil covered newspapers zipping through the city. You can actually draw a pretty straight line from Matatus to a history that we're going to get into. The history of people finding ways to work around colonial constraints. Nairobi was pretty much a settler city in the colonial period. And then after independence, more and more Kenyans or black Kenyans were allowed into the city and people needed a way to get to work. And so that's how the Matatu started. That's Dr. Kenda Mutongi, a historian of modern Africa at MIT, who wrote a book on Matatus. I would say that the Matatus really kind of helped in the expansion of the city because they were able to transport people who lived farther and farther away from the city center into the city. There is absolutely no corner, I think, but when I say that, I mean it, that Matatus haven't been. So that Matatu energy is tied to the entire city. And Afro Bubblegum draws from the creative energy of that city. That voice you heard calling for joy at the top of the episode, that was Kenyan filmmaker Wanuri Kahu. Nairobi's glorious. The Nairobi motto is the city in the sun. And today it surely, surely feels like that. It is hot, it is bright, it is sunshiny. It is tropical. We have the Nairobi National Park that sits in the heart of the city center so that you can go and see a lion or a giraffe if you'd like. We have a great wealth of humor when it comes to the people here. We are so full of joy and hope and love. That City in the Sun is where Wanuri set her 2018 film, Rafiki. And it caused a huge ongoing national debate, which we'll get to. But as to why it came to exist? I wanted to make a love story. I think that we don't have enough love stories coming from the side of the world. Let's make a pact that we will never be like any of them down there. Instead, we're going to be something real. Something real. Rafiki is a love story about two girls who fall in love. Despite uh, the angst they cause within the community about their forbidden love, they end up having to choose between their love and their safety. Um, And it always reminds me of a line in a Lucille Clifton poem that asks, what have you traveled towards more than your own safety? And so through the film, I try and answer that question. What do the girls travel towards more than their own safety? At first, the love story it tells couldn't be seen by Kenyans. Once the film was released, the film was banned in Kenya, which means it couldn't be broadcast, it couldn't be distributed, it couldn't be exhibited, and it couldn't be possessed within the Republic of Kenya. The film was banned and remains banned to this day. I know we shouldn't have been surprised, but we were still incredibly disappointed because... Not only do we love our our country, truly love our country, but we also believe in the mandate that was set out, which is 
our constitution. And our constitution allows us freedom of expression. The classification board wanted me to change the ending of the film because they felt that the ending of the film was too hopeful. And they thought that the ending should be remorseful. And when I refused to change the ending of the film, they banned it. So they said by keeping the ending of the film as is, which is a joyful ending, which is in keeping with my ethos on Afro-Bubblegum exploration of African life, it said that it normalized and glorified homosexual behavior. We actually got to talk to Dr. Ezekiel Mutua, who's the head of the Kenya Film Classification Board, to ask him why he banned the film. Kenya, for instance, does not allow homosexuality. While we know homosexuals exist and we know they have a right as human beings to be treated with dignity and their rights to be protected, if you're doing films about that subject, then you cannot glorify those kind of things against the law. I do not see any pride in pushing the boundaries of creativity if it's going against the law. So he's saying it's okay for a movie's characters to be gay, but gay characters can't end up happy or hopeful or joyous. And so Wanuri's joyous film was blocked by the government. You said before that you feel the film is is a love story and that's not a political story. Could you talk a bit about what you mean when you say that and how much you have to have in your mind the environment you're creating the story in when you create a story like this? Or if you try to keep the two pieces separate, the political reception and the creation of the story itself? I think when you're creating, you're not thinking about the reception, you're thinking about the creation first. When I say that it's not a political story, I think this is what I mean. Love has become associated with politics depending on who you love and what color you are and what religion you are. So a white straight couple, you wouldn't call that love political. But if you change the hue of the color of the person, (laughs) if you change the race, the ethnicity, the religion of the person, then it starts being called political. So when you have two black women loving each other, it stops being love. It's just called political, as if what they're doing is an act of politics, not an act of love. (laughs) Basically, work outside of what's perceived as mainstream is perceived as political, no matter what it's doing. And sometimes the world just forces joyous work into political situations. And that political situation has its roots in the same colonial history we touched on earlier. I was surprised to learn that Kenya has anti-homosexuality laws that were first imposed by British colonizers in 1897. It turns out that in the 19th century, Britain was particularly aggressive in outlawing same-sex relations, even more so than other European settlers at the time. Side note, Kenyan history is not alone in this. For example, America also had anti-homosexuality laws. Most of these nations, after independence, just sort of kept the bans in place, Kenya included. Wanuri says the effects of colonialism were way more than just legal. I think our joy was taken away. (laughs) I think people tried to cut our joy and make us less than. I think people tried to subdue us because we danced too frenetically. We laughed too loudly. And there began to be laws against that. There began to be laws against the way you dance, the poems you tell, the gatherings you have the cultures you've grown with. There began to be laws about the languages you speak. 
They took away our language. How can you express yourself without your own language? So, yes, some of it is as a result of that. But when you look further back, you see all of the glory of joy. You see all of the traditions that existed, some that we've kept, some that we haven't, like the Garawal tradition, where the men dress up and paint their faces in these elaborate colors as part of the harvest festival celebration. And they make really incredible faces. And the women judges circle them. And depending on who looks the most beautiful, the most elegant, the most who makes the most elaborate, strange face, they get to win a night of pleasure with the judge that chooses them. You know what I mean? Like those are joyful, fantastic traditions that existed before colonialism. You know, I think that while, yes, there have been things that have been suppressed as a result of colonialism and we're moving through that, I think that now we're responding to looking for those moments that we may have lost and those traditions that we may have lost, but they've always existed. So, yeah, in the story she's telling here, it's not that joy is just mysteriously lacking. Like she specifies, many joyous things were actively taken, and joyous images are part of that, hence the need for a movement. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Now it's time for an ad I created with our sponsor, Women Will, a Google initiative. We are spotlighting women all over the world who are finding new ways of impacting their communities. Renata Alexandra grew up in Rio de Janeiro. Brazilian women has enormous strength. They are leaders in their families, leaders in the community. Renata knows about strength. She went through medical school while working three jobs and raising two kids, and at the same time, surviving an abusive marriage. He strangled me, and I thought, God... I can die here. So I I decided that I had to change my city and learn how to defend myself. Renata started a new life in the north of Brazil, and she started studying Krav Maga, a martial art that was created for self-defense. I love it since the beginning because I saw that I could do something to defend myself. I could do something to be alive. What was it that made you feel love for it? When you have training your body, you are also training your mind. Every class you do, you go away from that a little stronger. I see. The more you know, 
you can kill someone, the less aggressive you become. But protecting herself wasn't Renata's only goal. Working as a gynecologist and talking with her patients, she saw how many other women were in abusive relationships. As a doctor, I have empathy to their stories. I say, I live it too. It's not only you. That was the great plan. How I could, as a doctor, mix self-defense. So Renata trained to become the first female Krav Maga instructor in the northeast region of Brazil. But when she started teaching, all of her students were men. She wanted to figure out how to get more women in her classes. When I did the training Grow with Google, they gave me tools to, to improve my work and to find the specific public that I wanted. Women in areas that I knew that the incidence of female murders occurs. Wow. You were actually finding places where women were likely to be in domestic abuse situations or in aggressive marriages? Yes, a lot of it. <laughs> Renata has now taught self-defense to hundreds of women. She uses Google My Business and Google Maps to target areas where violence against women is high. And then she works with women's shelters, attorneys, and domestic violence organizations to find more students from those areas. I am the first, but I am a mirror for any woman that wants to change her lives. Our physical survival is the only thing we, we really have for every woman of the world. They have the right of self-defense. Renata was able to fill her Krav Maga classes with women from areas of Brazil prone to domestic violence and in need of confidence and self-defense. Thanks to the Women Will initiative, Renata and others like her are able to access the digital skills they need to make an impact on the world. Active in 48 countries, this Grow With Google program helps inspire, connect, and educate millions of women. Learn more and join in the conversation on Instagram, at WomenWill. That's at W-O-M-E-N-W-I-L-L. -L. Our country's motto is peace, love, and unity. I've never been anywhere that wants to just embody the spirit of that, like this country. And our job is to try and, and work our way towards that. And in the process, remember that we are the highest versions of ourselves and continuously see that as an image rather than images that are so often in the media about hate or anger or violence, you know? We are glorious. We are joyful. We are resilient. We are resplendent. And I think those images should be our homing beacon. And that's really why I started thinking about ideas about Afro-bubblegum. What's cool about the word Afro-bubblegum is that as soon as you hear it, you kind of get what it is. Afro-bubblegum is fun, fierce, and frivolous African art. It's art for art's sake. It's art for the sake of joy. I felt that we were missing out on being joyous and allowing ourselves to be joyous because 
so often, especially when you decide to become an artist from the side of the world, instead of being something more serious like a doctor or a lawyer or whatever your family expects of you, they expect you to make serious work. And she felt the weight of what that seriousness should be. And she'd seen that seriousness disproportionately represented in stories that came out of Africa. Stories of war and hunger or corruption or disease, as if our stories are only about overcoming. And our stories are are never about joy. (laughs) And if we don't see ourselves as, as people of joy and we don't represent our own images as images of joy, then how do we know we're worthy? If seeing is believing and we don't see ourselves as joyful people, how do we know that that is something that we can work towards or we can attain or something that belongs to us? So I started to look for joy in our art and saw that it had always existed. We've always been a people of joy, and, and we should celebrate that. Um, and, and Afro Bubblegum was part of that conversation. Do you feel like Afro Bubblegum kind of had to start in Nairobi, or that there's something fundamental about Nairobi that's tied to Afro Bubblegum? I think Afro Bubblegum had to start in Africa, because there isn't any city that I've been to where you don't look at the history of the culture that has been in that country and see joy. So if you go to Senegal and you look at the way people dance, you'll see the joy there. If you go to Rwanda and see the way that the beautiful traditional hair and hair designs that the women used to wear, you see joy there. Afrobubblegum is an African concept. Could you tell me a bit about how you chose the words that you use to describe Afrobubblegum? So Afro bubblegum is fun, fierce, and frivolous works of art coming from the continent. It has to have joy in it. It has to have an element of of whimsy. It has to have an element of playfulness. That's what I consider fun. Fierce, I feel, has to be, is, is the strength and resilience. And not in the sense of, oh, look at them overcoming. Look at what they have gone through. Not in that sense. But the ability to rise to every challenge and overcome it. That kind of resilience, I feel like that is joy. That is like the power and the pillar and the backbone and the strength of joy is, is, is that fierceness, that resilience, you know, the ability to move forward regardless of what has happened, the ability to hope again and again and again past heartbreak. That's resilience. We have the right to be frivolous. We have the right to be like the cat in the hat. You know what I mean? So to allow for people to be frivolous, to try and fail, to experiment and backfire without the need for it to mean something, I think is really, really important. So that's why the word frivolous means so much. I can definitely relate to the feeling that you have to do things that are representing a people in your work. Just having a Muslim name in America makes me feel the weight of representation sometimes. And it can be kind of freeing to let yourself go from feeling like you're representing the struggle all the time. Like, I kind of want Islamo bubblegum to be a thing. Someone out there can think of a better name for that. Anyway, I was curious how the whole Afro bubblegum concept started. It came about as a result of a conversation with other artists. Um, I believe Madonna Drama Queen was part of that conversation. Blinky Bill was part of that conversation. And so we started talking about why don't we have the right to being like 
pop and bubblegum, like, you know, Afro bubblegum. And that's how it came up. And I saw you made almost like a Bechdel test of the specific rules. Could you tell me about those rules? Yeah, we have a test. It has three questions. In your piece of art, are two or more Africans sick or dying, hopeless or lost, or in need of saving? And if the answer is yes, then your work is not Afro bubblegum. One of the other artists that Wanuri mentioned as being there from the beginning of Afro Bubblegum is Bill Salanga, a.k.a. Blinky Bill. How would I describe my music? That's always been a hard question for me to answer. If a gun was put to my head, I'd be like, I'm an electronic African rapper and singer. And that will probably change the next time you ask me. Okay, it's a hard thing to describe. But is it Afro bubblegum? In the spirit of it, yes. I'd consider myself a part of that category. Like I agree with the sentiment of Afro bubblegum. There should be room for African creatives to just make, you know? And sometimes it's frivolous, sometimes it's serious, sometimes it's really well thought of, sometimes it's not well thought of. And that's what makes it cool. I don't think everything has to always have a deeper meaning. A brief digression, because I have to let him talk about a phrase that makes me crazy. I strongly dislike the term world music. For me, it's always felt kind of like a box where let's put everyone who who's not from Europe or America. But the world is becoming smaller. Like when I'm traveling in different places, I hear so much African music. So it's like we're no longer in that box. To me, it's an archaic term that needs to be done away with quickly. For a long time, Kenyans used to get a lot of music from elsewhere. But right now we are getting a lot more Kenyans making music that Kenyans are consuming. We are discovering ourselves in relation to the world in that sense, but also we're consuming a lot more of our own music than we have been in a long time. Bill just mentioned that he feels it's been a while since Kenyans were consuming Kenyan music which kind of gets us back to that colonialism we were talking about earlier and how it shapes what stories are told. When we left off with the story of Rafiki, the film was completely banned in Kenya. But being banned in Kenya doesn't stop directors from going international. Even though it was banned at home, Rafiki became the first Kenyan film to premiere at the Cannes Film Festival. If you can premiere at Cannes, you might be in the running for an Oscar. But there's a catch. In order to qualify for the Oscars, the film needs to be screened in its home country. So Wanuri sued the Kenya Film Classification Board, claiming they suppressed freedom of expression. We managed to get the ban lifted for seven days, which was the exact number of days we needed to qualify. It was a glorious moment when that happened. The film was screened in Kenya, which is a beautiful, 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 beautiful moment. To have people be able to watch the images that we so longed for them to watch on their screens. We managed to sell out almost every single screening. People flocked to it. So 
Suing the Kenya Film Classification Board got its scene at home in Kenya, which even just for seven days is a huge win. Kenyans saw it in Kenya. And since then, it's gone on to play at theaters around the world. In most countries, you can even rent it online. Go watch it. I did. The movie's great. So there's this interesting push and pull in all of this. The making of what Wanuri describes as frivolous art. She says she's not intending it to be political, and I believe her. But depending on where you're from, who you are, and what the world has handed you, the steps in getting frivolous things actually made can sound very not frivolous. It's work. All those historical forces we've been talking about, all those systems they put in place, you got to get past that. But Wanuri said Nairobi is going through an artistic renaissance of sorts, with independent music, film, art, and new festivals. She's excited, and as of when we last talked to her, Wanuri is still fighting to get the Kenyan ban on her film fully lifted. But she's committed and in no way giving up on joyous work. If somebody stops your ability to make work, then you push them aside and you continue to make your work. Because if I don't at least try to battle people who are in the way and impeding our progress in our ability to tell stories, then how can I ask anybody else to? Story is what gives us life, it's what gives us memory, it's what gives us identity, it's what makes us. Okay, if you remember way back at the beginning, for something to be Afro bubblegum... The end would always have to be hopeful. So, on that note... I'd love to project more hopeful, radical hope. Ideas that are full of awakened curiosity that help us think in new ways, that help us value Africa in new ways, because I really, truly think that once we begin to see Africa in a new light, it will help globally with many, many injustices that we still face. Okay, now to double down on joyousness, back to Blinky Bill for our outro music. Far Flung with Salim Rushamwala is produced by Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom of Magnificent Noise for TED. Our production staff includes Sabrina Farhi, Sally Chum, Maeve Francis, Ida Holinambi, Tevin Sudi, Huete Gitana, Kim Naderfane Peterson, Elise Glenahasse, Angela Chang, and Michelle Quint. With the guidance of Roxanne Highlash and Colin Helms. Our fact checker is Julia Dickerson. Ad stories are produced by Transmitter Media. Very special thanks to Mathoni Drummer Queen and Blinky Bill for letting us use their joyous music in this episode. This episode was mixed and sound designed by Kristen Muller. Our executive producer is Eric Newsom. Special thanks to our sponsor, Women Will, a Grow with Google program. I'm Salim Rashamwala. In a damn one, it is she.